Hello and welcome to the Fit Leaders Podcast, the podcast for leaders seeking sustainable success. I'm your host, David Chinsky, founder of the Institute for Leadership Fitness and creator of Fit Leaders Academy. Join me as we explore how fit leaders enjoy vibrant lives marked by personal health and sustained contributions. In this podcast, The Master Motivator, we're going to talk about what brings out the best in our people. There's been a lot of research over the years with regard to what truly motivates our people to follow our guidance, to engage more completely in their work. And we're going to spend some time reviewing the more classical or traditional theories around motivation. And I'm also going to share with you the most recent research that suggests three levers or factors that truly bring out the best in our people. I'd like to start, though, with just a few questions that can ground us in our understanding of of what motivates not only others, also what is it that motivates us. So when you think about what brings out your best work, what encourages you to come to work every day and to feel a high level of engagement. When I ask this question in my classes, often I hear things like, well, I want to be able to work on projects that interest me, that allow me to grow my skills. I also hear that it's important for leaders to feel appreciated, that their bosses are recognizing and acknowledging the contributions that are being made. Working for someone that I trust, someone that I can learn from, someone that provides me with the opportunities to advance in my career. Very rarely do I hear money. I need more money to feel engaged. And that's because we have learned over many, many decades of research that money is a very short-term motivator. Yes, we all want money. We always think that we should be paid more than we are. And while money is certainly very important to all of us that work, after we make a certain level of income, and that level is approximately $75,000, Money loses its effect on us. We are not bound to organizations because of money. And one way to think about this is when did you get your last raise? Maybe it was the beginning of the calendar year. Maybe it was the anniversary date of your employment. When you got that raise, I suspect you felt really good. The question to ask yourself now is, when did you want your next raise? So if you got your raise, let's say, on your anniversary date, how soon after that were you thinking about money again and thinking that you should be paid more? 70 to 80% of the people I ask this question of tell me things like the next week or the next month. When people get a raise, it's not a permanent feeling of happiness. In fact, lots and lots of research, particularly research out of Yale University, has shown that money does not make us happy. It's the other things that 
I hear consistently from leaders when I ask them what motivates them, like recognition and appreciation and feeling that they are making a contribution, knowing that they are aligned with their management, trusting their management. So again, we're not in any way diminishing the importance of money and paying people fairly. In fact, that's often more of the issue than how much money we get. Often people compare themselves to others. And I remember something my dad said to me when I was growing up. He said, David, there's always going to be people in this world that make more money than you. And there's always going to be people in this world that make less money than you. And you're going to need to just appreciate that reality. And you want to make sure that you're being paid fairly. So often the trouble that that we get into in the workforce around money is when people find out that someone else is making more money than them and they're wondering why is that happening? And even though there may be some good reasons, that is often more of the challenge in managing people around money than constantly paying people more and more money more frequently simply because they feel that they should be paid more. If we are taking care of these other needs, and we're going to be calling these other needs the higher level needs in just a few moments, people are less likely to be focused on money and are going to be more willing to stay engaged because we're giving them the other things that, quite frankly, are, in fact, much more important to them than money. So what about some of the behaviors of managers that we report to in the organization that can actually result in demotivating us? We've talked a little bit about what we like to be in place for us to feel motivated. What are some of the things that our managers do that that just zap our, our drive and our engagement and our motivation? Well, one of the things that I hear quite often is micromanaging. Have you gotten this done yet? When is it going to be done? No, that's not how I want you to do this. Let, let, me, let me show you how this should be done. So when we don't feel that our leadership is trusting us to do the job they've asked us to do, that can be highly demotivating. We want to feel that our managers trust us to do our best work, that they hired us, because they felt that we were competent and capable of quality work. So when our bosses try to hover over us and ask us repeatedly, when are we going to get it done? That suggests to us that perhaps they don't trust us. And again, that can lead to being demotivated. Now, sometimes another reason I hear from leaders that they don't feel motivated is when their bosses do something that they don't think is ethical. So if we don't respect our leadership because we don't feel they're doing the right thing, and it's not just a matter of we simply disagree with their policy or with their approach or the speed with which they're getting things done, it's something more fundamental. It, it can be an ethical breach. We feel that that our leaders are doing something that is violating a trust that we have with our customers or someone who is constantly talking about other people uh, in front of us. 
So when we feel that people are are making these ethical breaches, that can cause us to lose trust in, in, in our management and also take away some of our motivation. We can also be demotivated if our leaders are constantly taking credit for everything that we do. And even though many people have acknowledge that we can get a lot more done in this world if we don't care who gets the credit. If we have a boss that is constantly taking the credit for our ideas, that can get very tiring. We can begin to wonder why the leader is unwilling to give us the visibility and to give us the credit for doing good work. We can also lose our motivation if we feel stuck in our career, if we don't feel like we have an advocate for our next position or for the growth that that we're hoping will take place for us personally in the organization. So again, it's not about the money. It's not that we're not being paid enough and so I'm not going to be motivated. It's often because we're not getting some of the things that, that all of us tend to acknowledge first when asked the question, what motivates us? recognition, appreciation, growth, opportunity to work on things that matter to us. And also it's the absence of some of the things that we've just discussed that demotivate us like micromanagement and lack of trust and people stealing our ideas or taking credit for our work. When we think about motivating our people, therefore, we want to think about what motivates us. And unfortunately, Many leaders who have grown up in some of the more traditional theories around motivation put more emphasis on money as a way to motivate people than these higher level needs that we've just described. And as a result, we're having more and more discussions around money when in fact employees tell us time and time again that more important than money are these other higher level needs that they want to have present in their relationship with the organization and with their boss to truly feel motivated. So when we think about how to bring out the best in our people, these are not difficult things to do, to to catch people doing things right, to look for opportunities, to acknowledge the contributions of our people, to understand by having regular discussions with our people, where do they want to be in the next year, in the next five years, so that we can be looking out on their behalf for other opportunities in the organization that would satisfy those career aspirations and by avoiding some of the things that we talked about that that demotivate. One of the reasons that we have this disconnect, I believe, is because many of us grew up learning Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where Maslow, who in the early 1950s postulated that there were five different needs that needed to be satisfied if we were going to truly motivate our people. The very base of Maslow's pyramid, as you'll remember, was the basic needs, the physiological needs having sufficient training to do your job, having enough heat and light so that you weren't squinting or shivering. If you've ever tried to do work when it's really cold, 
I have on a number of occasions, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to feel like you're able to do your best work. So according to Maslow, if we were not taking care of these most basic needs, we were not going to be able to motivate people. And any discussion about giving someone greater responsibility in the organization, allowing them to work on creative and innovative projects was literally going to fall on deaf ears. Because according to Maslow, if you're not satisfying these basic physiological needs, you're not going to motivate people with these higher level needs. So when I talk about higher level needs, I'm referring to the upper half of Maslow's hierarchy, which we're going to identify According to Maslow, if you satisfied the physiological needs, then you could motivate people by satisfying the next level of need, which for Maslow was safety or security needs. So the physiological needs having been met, the employee often is now thinking, well, what if something happens to me? Are you going to take care of my family? Are there benefits? Do I have life insurance? Do I have health care benefits? Do I have a job description that prevents you from having me do anything that, that you want without any boundaries or fence around what, what should be expected in my position? So some sense of safety and security. Again, according to Maslow, once those safety or security needs were satisfied, he felt that you could then motivate people by satisfying their needs for belonging. He called these the social needs, teamwork, company outings, encouraging people to collaborate and chat in, in the workforce. So many of us enjoy our work in large part because of the people that we work with. And that sense of belonging, that sense of community can be highly motivating to people. So those are the first three levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The fourth level, as we move up the pyramid, is what Maslow called esteem needs. This is acknowledging people, giving them recognition for their work, promoting them, giving them more responsibility. And then finally, at the very top of Maslow's pyramid is self-actualization needs. And self-actualization is all about reaching a point in your career where you feel like you're working on the things that you really want to work on. You've got the opportunity to fail. You've got the opportunity to create. You have the opportunity for growth and development. And at this point, you're just motivated by the work itself. And so while not everyone self-actualizes in their lifetime, some people self-actualize early in life, some people self-actualize at later stages in their life. The takeaway from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, though, is that he felt that all five of these levels of need were capable of motivating people to do increasing amounts of work at higher quality. About 10 years after Maslow did his pioneering work around his hierarchy of needs, so in the 1950s, that's when Maslow did his work. 10 years later, in the, in the mid-1960s, there was another psychologist by the name of Frederick Herzberg. And Herzberg postulated that it was only the higher level needs, the top two and a half levels of Maslow's 
hierarchy that truly brought out the best in people. And he felt that the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy of needs simply created an environment that removed dissatisfaction on the part of workers or employees. And so while Maslow thought that you could motivate people by satisfying their physiological needs, which include money and their safety and security needs and some of their social needs, Herzberg postulated that until you get to the middle of that pyramid, until you're well into the social needs and then the esteem needs and the self-actualization needs, you were not really motivating people. You weren't engaging them. You weren't satisfying them. You were simply removing dissatisfaction. So bottom line, Herzberg wasn't saying that Maslow was wrong in constructing his hierarchy of needs. Where he disagreed with Maslow was in whether the bottom half of that hierarchy, physiological needs, money, and security benefits, were capable of actually motivating people. So one of the ways to think about the difference between Herzberg and Maslow is that the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy was viewed by Herzberg as simply being hygiene factors. They had to be there for people to not be dissatisfied. And according to Herzberg, if you did pay people what they wanted to be paid, and if you gave them sufficient benefits, you would simply be removing dissatisfaction. So if people didn't feel like they were making enough money and you paid them more money, according to Herzberg, the best you could hope for is to remove the dissatisfaction from feeling like they weren't making enough money. Herzberg did not agree with Maslow that by paying people more money, you would motivate them or you would engage them or you would cause them to want to work more or harder. According to Herzberg, you needed to be in the upper level of the hierarchy and he referred to that portion of Maslow's pyramid or hierarchy of needs as motivators. So the bottom half were hygiene factors. The top half of Maslow's hierarchy, Herzberg considered to be motivators. And this is very consistent with what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, where I shared with you what I hear from leaders when I ask them what motivates them and what demotivates them. Almost all of the answers we get in terms of what motivates people fall in the upper two levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the self-esteem needs, which, uh, which again is all about recognition and appreciation and getting promoted and having increased responsibility in the organization and also being able to work on projects that float your boat, that, that really help you define yourself and, and give you this opportunity to tinker and to create and innovate. And isn't that what we want at the end of the day from our people? An interest and a willingness to go the distance and, and to go above and beyond even what we're asking them to do for the organization? That can come about if people are engaged, if they're motivated, and the only way the research has shown us they're going to be motivated is if, in fact, we are attending to those higher level needs. 
Now, one caveat that I'd like to, to share, and, and that is when someone is just entering the workforce, so someone young in their career, early in their career, money has a much more powerful influence than it does for people who have been in their career for, let's just say, a few years. And that's because when you are just starting out, you're more likely to be looking to establish yourself. Maybe you're looking to buy some property, buy a home. Maybe you're looking to start a family. And so if someone comes and offers you a 10% increase in your salary, that's going to be a lot more appealing to you because of where you are in your life than it is to someone who is now more established in an organization even if the person would like more money, as we said early on, all of us always think we're underpaid. We always feel like we want to make more money. And particularly if we're comparing ourselves to other people, which is a rabbit hole many of us go down and, and too often get stuck in, as opposed to focusing on the other things that lend much more long-term satisfaction to us. So I did want to make that distinction though with regard to how someone who's just starting out will often find money to be a much more important ingredient to how they're feeling about their work. Now, some of you might be saying, David, this is old research, 1954, 1966. So Maslow came out with his hierarchy of needs in 1954. And then Herzberg postulated his different uh, opinion with regard to whether all five levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs truly motivated. That came out in 1966. A legitimate question is, well, what about the, the new research? Well, interestingly, there wasn't a lot of research done around motivation in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. It wasn't until the 2000s, the early 2000s, that research into motivation picked up. And interestingly, what that research has pointed to are three factors. I call them three levers of increased engagement and satisfaction. And the first of those three factors is autonomy. The second is mastery. And the third is purpose. And these three levers are expertly summarized and presented in a book by Daniel Pink, called Drive. So Dan Pink does a marvelous job of presenting this most recent research. And so let me just summarize for you these three contributors to motivation. And then let's end with the question, which of the two classical theories, Herzberg or Maslow, does this new research tend to support. So let's talk about autonomy. Autonomy is about giving people some control over what they do. Give them more of a, a role in, in deciding what they do, how they do it, when they do it. And while there admittedly are some jobs where we can't give people more autonomy because it's something where we have very very clear guidelines and, and processes because if we don't follow them, people could get hurt, people could die. Think of the healthcare industry, think of the airline industry. 
in those industries, we need to be very careful how we do things because if we don't follow protocols, people could die. So yes, there are going to always be some jobs within organizations that are going to be less likely to benefit from greater autonomy. And yet many of the jobs that people have around the world do not require the same level of adherence to do it this way, do it that way as the healthcare and the airline industry do. So whenever we can find ways to provide more flexibility, to provide more inclusion in the decision-making process, to allow people to take more risks, they are going to feel more control. And as a result, they're going to feel more engaged in their work. So autonomy is the first lever that has been found to increase engagement and motivation. The second lever that the new research has pointed to is mastery. And what mastery is, is the ability to work on projects that you're already good at and that you can get better at. Unfortunately, many people around the world work at jobs that exercise their weaknesses as opposed to their strengths. And so they are constantly working at projects, at tasks where they're demoralized because they're often not successful at at producing results because they don't really know how to do it well. And it's very disappointing to them when they try something and, and they're not able to do it. So whenever we can assign and align jobs and tasks with the skills of people that have already been proven, where people feel like they can exercise what they're good at and give them the opportunity to to even grow their mastery. They're going to feel like they're learning, they're growing. And so even though we can't assign jobs 100% based on are you good at this or not, because we obviously need to have people do some tasks that perhaps they're not masterful at, to the extent that we can find some marriage between existing skill sets and the requirements of of a task, we're going to increase engagement. The final lever is purpose. And purpose is all about letting people in on the impact of their work day-to-day on the bigger picture, on the overall strategy of the organization, on the satisfaction of key customer needs. Sometimes when we are at a higher level of management or leadership in an organization, that purpose seems very evident to us, often because we've contributed to creating that vision and that strategy and that purpose. As we move deeper into the organization, People sometimes don't see the impact of their day-to-day work on that bigger picture. And so it is incumbent on us as their leaders to connect the dots, to help them see what they are making possible through their day-to-day work. Because it can be difficult sometimes to see that what I do every day, which seems perhaps like drudgery, very repetitive, how that is actually important. And it is critically important. Everyone doing their job, when we roll all that up, is what creates the success of the organization and the responsiveness to our our customers. So 
This latest research is saying that if we give people more control over their job within whatever limits we, we need to work within so that they have more control in, in how they work and what they work on, if we give them the ability to exercise their strengths instead of their weaknesses, and if we connect the dots between the work that they're doing day to day and the bigger picture, and the impact that we're making on our customers, that they are going to be more engaged. If you think about where autonomy, mastery, and purpose live on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's pretty clear that they live in the upper portion of Maslow's hierarchy, that it is the appreciation, the recognition, the advocacy for our employees, the development of our people, having them work on projects that they enjoy that really create the conditions for higher levels of engagement and motivation. If you would like to learn more about how to become a master motivator and how to become a fit leader, I invite you to visit fitleadersacademy.com, fitleadersacademy.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.